What's going on with dance and stuff? What's happening with dance and things? What's going on? What's happening? What's going on with dance and stuff? Oh, hello. Uh, the song just played, I'm assuming. Hello, Jack. Good afternoon. Hello, Reed. Good afternoon. How are you doing? <laughs> um, I'm doing okay. I'm trying to stay organized. I'm trying to take on some responsibilities every day for both myself and for uh, civic responsibility. Um, a lot of which I'm finding out about through Instagram. I'm signing petitions and I'm donating money and, um, you know, generally trying to put aside a little bit of time each day to learn something that I didn't know and take on some responsibility for the atrocities of our race. Yeah. I think that's, that, uh, that is my hope of what everyone or I rather I should say that what white people are doing and who may be listening to this podcast right now and um uh and also in terms of that uh there are many resources that can many be found on the internet and I also I know that I said this um I think when we were talking with Bill I'm also up for giving resources um from the privilege I've had. Oh no, I said this with Jess. It's like the privilege of in working in academic situations where we were able to be given um, anti-racist trainings and uh, literature to read and, and there's more literature to read always. And um, yes, all of that. And as you also said, doing something for yourself as well, because this is, this is the, the, a long haul yeah, I don't think at this point we can put aside how difficult this time is just generally for us as individuals. No. You know, putting aside the fact that we're now in this enormously tumultuous moment because of race, because of the death of George. And I I think it's still important to remember that, you know, we've all been on our own, cooped up in houses for cooped. Not kooked, you guys. You guys don't. But you might me. feel. Cooped. But you might feel kooky from being cooped. Yeah, yeah you are kooky, yeah, cooped yeah. up, and so you know we still have to take care of ourselves. If you need to do some yoga class, Cunningham class each day to feel like your head's on straight, absolutely take that time for yourself. Well, and I will also say that you know there's that adage of give away the flame and not the oil. And I really know what it is to give away the oil and to just uh, not eat, not sleep, and uh, get loud about it. That is, and we're seeing, you know, I think we're, we're seeing that, obviously we're seeing that with our healthcare workers with COVID in terms of burnout. And um, this, is, this is a real, okay, but, and I love that you brought up being organized you're very good at that. And mm -hmm. I think that is what this requires is a long, organized uh, dismantling of the, the power structures of the world. Yeah. And I think there it's not it doesn't have to be that hard. I know it seems overwhelming, but there are there are many things that you can look at on Instagram, especially the ones where it lays out in like five pages, like here are the simple steps to take 
to assert yourself as someone who's trying to help make a difference. And that means grassroots efforts inside of the law to try to make a difference, to change legislation, to change the people in power. And, you know, in a country that is still a democracy, hopefully for the time being, we still have the power to do that. Sorry, you broke up there on my end. I couldn't hear you. Well, I recorded it. You'll just have to listen. You'll, no, you? you'll just have to hear it on the pod. <laughs> yeah, something that I, what was great that is free and that I've been reading is The End of Policing um, through Verso Books. And also just understanding that this place of the police as a place to take care of everything the government is not doing. In fact, the things the government is is doing to ensure uh, race inequalities um, and uh, uh, class inequalities, and then just uh, having the police go and clean it up. And so, and the way the police are used by this completely ineffectual government. Um, and the power they're granted and the, as people have probably seen, if, especially if you are, if you follow Rita and I, there have been many, um, things coming up right now about how much, and this was news to me about how funded the police are compared to other programs Mm. that has been really, really helpful. Again, and you can find it through, um, Verso books is written by Alex. I believe his last name is pronounced Fatale and uh, who is one of our uh, New York professors. Um, and it's great. And obviously, I just have to continue. <laughs> the, the tear gassing of people to get out of the way for Trump to pose with a Bible in front of a church. Wow. Reed said this last week, and I, I... I'm going to reiterate, mm-hmm. if you are a Republican, how dare you? I, I mean, revise that slightly, Jack. Don't listen to us anymore. No, no, no. Revise the part about being a Republican. To what? I think that if you have Republican values, it's okay. If you support Donald Trump, that is very far outside the values of being a Republican. So if you want to be true to your values, then you're lying to yourself if you support him and vote for him. Yeah, I am unfamiliar really with what the values of the Republican Party are in this in a real way, as I would feel similarly. But, you know, I also have a problem with this two party system. And well, that- it's, it feels very clear that a lot of Republicans in this nation are not connected to whatever their values may be because they're acting like totally valueless human beings, like worthless pieces right. of shit that they don't stand up to him, that they don't speak out against him because they're so afraid of losing their hold on power yeah. in the government. And that is what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's ridiculous. Every single one, every single politician should be outraged. They should all be speaking out against him. And that is, and that is the thing that's in this, in terms of in this book about in the end of policing, where he talks about um, how much the government doesn't do to take care of this supposed society, and that is both uh, on the right and the left. And I think it is, it is, and what for uh, a lot of people felt hard in Bernie not going forward. Yeah. But there, there is no choice. Donald Trump cannot be president. We are heading, 
as we all have talked about forever, into an autocracy and the racism the, the, is extreme, is extremely set on fire and allowed for by calling, you know, we talked about this in the last episode, you know, people storming a Michigan Capitol and they're like good people. And then other people being called thugs. I'm, I'm continually, sh- I'm shocked on the daily that this country is allowing him to continue to be president every day. I'm like, I am shocked. I don't get it. When is enough enough? I mean, I did get, I had like an out loud LOL when I saw that photograph of him holding the Bible, but when they, they changed the words in the, um, the placard next to him that were, you know, I think, I don't know what they said originally, but they, they, they did a transcription of his, um, of the words he said in that trailer where he talked about grabbing pussies. Oh, and they put it on that. Um, yeah, it was really funny. I mean, also that there was someone who, uh, there was someone who works for that church who got tear gassed. Well, excuse me, the the management of that church immediately put out a, a press release that was like, we do not stand with this person. He does not align with our values. So bravo to them. Bravo to any Christians who, who see right through him as if Donald Trump had any kind of religious values. I mean, I don't have religious values, but the fact that he pretends to is outrageous. Is outrageous. And his incitement of his, uh, evil constituents is, um, you know, and it's what we're, it's, it's we've been seeing this unfold and, and it, here we are and with a pandemic and, um, tinderbox of, racial inequality that was broadcast on national television that took forever for those officers to be arrested, all four. I can't believe it. It's, Mm. and then you can believe it, right? Because Mm. you look back and I mean, you and I grew up uh, with Rodney King Mm and thinking about Ferguson. It's just, anyhow, I want to, I don't want us to talk too long because I want us to bring our guest on and, and get to our guest who has lived through a lot and has a lot to say and uh, honored to have Bill T. Jones on today. Oh, Bill, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And um, uh, first of all, where are you located right now? I am here in Valley Cottage and I would like to do a land land acknowledgement. Have you been doing those? We, yes. I don't think we've been doing them on our pod. We've not. In terms of starting yes, at I, each I, time where we're at. Yes, so please. Well, I'm, yes, yes, because I am in, uh, uh, let me see if I can, well, I don't, I can't pick it up right now, but the, uh, I'd like to acknowledge the land of the Ramapo peoples who were here be- long before I was and any other indigenous people that might be listening to this broadcast now. And there's also one for New York Live Arts. Oh, what is the we one for that, New York Live Arts? Well, there's a whole Indian uh, group, of, I'm sorry, group of native peoples and whose name now escaped me. And I should open my computer, my uh, phone and read it, but I won't. But I'm sure you could find that. You, I would really encourage you to do that. I will. I think. This is I a will. time we, yeah, I first, we, yeah. I first encountered um, land acknowledgement doing a job in Canada a few years ago. And the National Ballet of Canada at their big theater did that before the show and I thought well we should all be doing mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. it's amazing that I haven't heard the this same more. thing happened when I oh, t- I'm a, I'm a, go ahead sorry Bill 
Well, you know Emily Johnson. Yes, and we just did a we just did a panel together, and we talked about that when we were work, we were on an advisory committee. And she, did she insist that we before it started yes. that they did they do? Yeah, one? yeah. She, it's good habit. It's hard for me to do. It's like it's like me getting my pronouns together with all of my performers. You know, I have a I have a trans person, and I fuck up at least one rehearsal, if not twice, using the long, wrong pronoun for them. I don't know if you guys, if you think that, you know, as uh, gay men, and we can say that, I'm assuming I'm speaking to two cis, cisgendered men who are, identify as he. Uh, I also go gay. by all. I as do I, as I do, yeah. I also go by all, which came up. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting. We just had a faculty conversation, and I told my faculty that it's something that I start every semester going through and asking my students what their pronouns are, and that my pronouns are mm-hmm. all. But I realize at the faculty <laughs> level, with these people I've been teaching with since 2013, I don't do that. I don't. I know what you mean. It's an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. Well, I did. I did a um, COVID panel with uh, Carrie Mae Weems and uh, Aletha, um, Dr. Aletha Frank, I believe her name is, who is now the first black woman at the American Medical Association in her position, talking about COVID. And in that situation, I didn't, it didn't occur to me to do it. And I, when it was over, we had been talking about some very intense things. So I thought, well, why didn't that? So it's something about, um, as gay people or, or men of our description, maybe we're doing, uh, what is it, the, 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 uh, double consciousness? Mm. And we sometimes fuck up. Right. Oops, I'm sorry, am I allowed you to can absolutely swear, swear. You can absolutely swear can through this whole <laughs> podcast, I swear, all the time. Sometimes yeah. we have to have, like, triple consciousness, right? right? Yeah. You know, how can you be a, because uh, right now in the middle of this, as my sisters are remor- reminding me, there's two pandemics now. Yeah. So uh, who and, and in each pandemic, I have another relationship. And if you want to consider the um, uh, Considering New Futures document that's being generated by people in our field about the inequities of uh, capitalism in terms of artist salaries and the, and the well, artists being shut out during this time when they were just canceled with no concern about what happens to their lives if someone loses a whole fall, you know, in that situation, I am at once an artist, but I'm also an administrator. Right. So I have to wear I have to wear a lot of a lot of hats. I'm sure you both do as well, don't you? Do you know the document I'm referring? Yeah, to? that which just began. I mean, that just well, and I just went to um, Jay Bowie and uh, Melanie Green's the town hall town the other night. Hall. The town. Yeah. Which I heard yeah. about yesterday from uh, Kyle Maud at my office. Yeah, Kyle was there. It was kind of amazing. It was amazing to see so many familiar faces from the dance community showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very moving and provocative. And it's it's available for everybody to still watch. So we recommend that. I heard that they were primarily young people. It was. I, Kyle's impression was that they did not invite the seniors. Well, Jay Bowie brought up that um, that they that there was I I I don't want to use I don't want to try and uh, say what Jay said. Jay brought up uh, a discussion around elders, and that it was um, considered, and that there's more to be discussed on that. Mm-hmm. Was 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 how it was left, and also it seems. Uh, 
I mean, they were very transparent with the expediency with which they needed to put the town hall together with. And what do you mean and by that? They did it short in a short period of time? Or I mean, what? how quickly they needed to, they, mm-hmm. they wanted to get it together. And I, I also believe that it is going to be, uh, and I hope it will be the first of many to continue a really necessary dialogue um, inside of this community, inside of the dance community, which is already so... <laughs> Yeah, I, God, what's the what's the words to use? I mean, yes. uh, in terms of where we even fall uh, in the capital juggernaut ladder mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. of extreme uh, difficulties in funding, though something I love that was brought up uh, in the town hall was an idea that in the nonprofit sector, there is enough for everyone, and it is a matter of us coming. We need to be coming more together less competitive. Mm. Um, and I think that uh, really Does that sound right me. to you, Jack? Is that right? Well, I've seen your work, my friend. And your work is the blood that's on the floor, psychological and physical, in, uh, <laughs> in studios, and particularly in the b- ballet world and all. And yeah. it seems almost a sacrament, this, uh, I don't know, maybe I've, I've drank the Kool-Aid about... I thought that there was something at play in the way art gets made and the way the best ideas get to the front. Well, isn't it true that's one of the things that you deal with, at least in the works I've seen, is that why is there so much sturm und drang in those situations in the rehearsal room and who the director is and the relationship between the performers? And In terms of my own work, I it was always, I mean, my commissions were like $3,000, $5,000. I think the, the, the biggest commissions I've ever had were uh, from you, from New York Live Arts. And really? from, yeah, and from Bard College when they put together Shamb. But up until that point, the largest commission I had was 11 uh, when I did Rumble Ghost, 11 grand. And I didn't have private funders and I wasn't the first grant that I became a recipient of was one I didn't apply for. It's the FCA. You know, that's where they they they, they sort of stalk you for a bit. <laughs> you don't know they're out there. No, I don't. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sure people at the office, like David Archuleta, my production people, I mean, I'm sorry, my development people know, but I don't know. The FCA is an incredible grant where they, they watch you for a while and you don't know you're being watched. And then you Ooh. get a phone call that you're a recipient of this oh. grant. And... What was tremendous about even receiving that grant was it came on the heels of a really of a review that was just you know demolishing, and uh, <laughs> I felt um, it was it was really helpful, especially because that and, and you and I have talked about this that that review had was so uh, laced with femphobia and uh, at that at the time I just read as homophobia, and then a friend of mine who's trans actually went through the language and said, this is femphobia. Mm, and mm, mm. so uh, anyhow, but in terms of, I think the, how to create more, but here we're talking about money and, and this idea more, of more equity, equity and how, <laughs> yes. And how can that happen? And uh, I'm not an administrator. And in terms of the projects I've done, I'm project-based. I have, I, I didn't, I, I was like, I am not going to be able to get a board together and know how to do that. I'm such an Aquarius. So I've been taken care of by teaching. I mean, it's it's all, in terms mm. of the money I've made, it's all been through being a teacher. Oh. Um, 
yeah, I didn't. And then whatever, what, whenever I had a show, I was just like, well, we're going to divide this evenly. And I remember, um, I think it was, there was two choreographers who I remember being like, I know, but honey, you did a lot of work before those rehearsals. Were you paying yourself for that? Mm-hmm. And I didn't. But that came because I was a performer first. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was a performer first and I wanted um, the it to have the equity that I felt I had wanted as a performer. But anyhow, so Bill, where you are. I think we diverged from this document. Oh, sorry, yes. I, still, I don't remember what the name of it was. It's called uh, uh, New Futures, and there's another word I'm missing. Uh, exploring New Futures or something that, that it's called. And there's about 10 people that put it together. Emily Johnson, it, supposedly it came from an... Um, what was it, a letter that, she, something she posted on Instagram about her feelings of being misused with uh, cancellations. And it led her to begin to think about the whole uh, architecture of the field and how the artists are at the mm. mercy of presenters and that the presenters are at the mercy of funders. And, and they, uh, it's quite a lot. I mean, I required my dancers to read the first 46 pages, which was just the... Uh, history and uh, the contextualization and then a lot of, uh, of, of, of first-hand testimonials. And now I'm reading about the organizational, uh, from the point of view of, the, of technical people, from funders, from whatever. It's because one of the people who was in the regular, in the regular compilers is, I, mean, I believe, a man who works at, um, in, in, as an administrator at University of uh, UMass. So it's trying to be very, very uh, inclusive, and it has said it. They, the the people defining it have said we know that um, this is not speaking to everybody yet. They say we do this on behalf of those persons who, those persons, those artists who see themselves in a category of experimental, and they say, but this is not addressing the needs of commercial artists, and I guess in that right. is also ballet companies. They say that the next. Uh, stage of it. They hope this document is handed off to another group of persons who will go through it for language and insights from other points of view, and that someday it should be a document that's useful in negotiations in, they didn't say ballet, but I think they meant ballet world and the commercial theater. So you can see they they have a big, big vision, big vision. Yeah. And of course it will affect government, local and federal government in terms of how arts are distributed, and it will affect the whole culture of philanthropy. This is the hope. So I, I, it's, a, it's fascinating reading, depending on where you're sitting. It can be very frustrating reading. Um, it can seem very, there's that word, privileged. You know, mm-hmm. it can seem uh, um, very young, but it seems very necessary. I want to, I, 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 think, I think I was thinking of a different uh, article. I've been... I mean, in this moment, I'm trying to read everything all at once. And I think there does need to be time for each and, mm-hmm. and real, uh, as, as we talk about in, the, in an academic setting, deep reading, you know, that mm-hmm. I don't just read something and then not incorporate it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I do well, want to that find again, that. Say, say that again. Deep reading for you is... Deep reading. Deep reading. Is that when I read it, that I actually take the time to incorporate it and I don't mm. just read and move on to the next. Mm-hmm. And when you had your dancers read it, how did you, um, what, what did, what were, we have a check, we have a weekly check-in 
and the weekly check-in. Okay. Uh, my my truly enlightened okay. associate artistic director Janet Wong takes care. She takes care of the business because when uh, we were interrupted at Mass Mocha in our tech for Deep Blue Sea, the Armory Commission, the whole world just for me went kaplooey, and we were like this video crew there, all the collaborators finally in one room. And uh, sorry, we have to close down. And I came home and for a week I couldn't do anything except deal with the reality that, oh my God, my work was stopped. My work, my work, my work. And then we heard that it was going to be canceled. So um, in the meantime, what are we doing? What are we doing? At that time, of course, a lot of us, I don't know how you felt, we thought there was going to be maybe a month at the most, remember? And that, okay, after a month, we'll get back to normal, get back to normal. And a month turned into two and so on. But Janet, from the beginning, said, oh, no, no, we've got to keep, I know we're going to all be social distanced, but the dancers need assignments. They And so she did that. I thought, just are you crazy? But, you know, they're like someone's little apartment in the East Village. And she sent out tapes that, um, because a lot of them are very young. And, okay, they're in this company that has... Uh, some recognizability, if not uh, notoriety. And so do they know what Bill and Arnie looked like dancing together? Do they know what Bill was like when he was really dancing? Do they know what the themes were? So she found solos and she tried to focus it all on work that came from me. Because, you know, I don't really make the movement. I haven't really make it, made movement for probably 15 years. I make some, but the dancers generate and she's great. But then they had an opportunity to see this and they have to videotape themselves doing it. And there's even something we have called, called Then and Now. And it shows, uh, uh, for instance, uh, Odile Ren Adelaide, this uh, beautiful shaven head woman who used to dance with me, doing uh, a solo from, uh, from Still Here called Slash, Poison and Burn, which is very, very virtuosic, very difficult and very emotional, next to my 22-year-old, 23-year-old, Naya. Uh, Naya is a beautiful young black woman, and she's now trying to learn in her a room what Odile was doing almost 20 years ago. And uh, Janet edited them, edited them together just to show, um, as I say, material trying to find its way into another era and into another body. So that's been our assignment. So we check in once a week and we talk about those things. And when Janet and Veronica Falburn, our, uh, our, our, our very important Who I person, also love so much. Isn't she I wonderful? I love Janet and I love Veronica so much. And they, Janet and Veronica and Kyle took care of me. <laughs> like, I can't even... Well, I can't. It's, it's a separate discussion, but yeah. But you'll have to listen to them because I am a bit of a bulldozer, which I think you probably recognize as well. And I can be um, be so involved in what I'm feeling that I don't... Mm-hmm. They say, well, hey, check in. Ask them, how are you doing? And then people briefly tell you how they're doing. Then after that, a little housekeeping from Kyle Maud about what the tour in the fall is like, what is and what is not. And now... Let's talk about something else. And that something else, I hope, would be discussions around the aesthetics of the company. Can you look at those two guys, that funny-looking smaller guy, that 
that preening tall black guy and seeing what they were doing in the, at the kitchen or at uh, performance space 120, no, 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 uh, the dance space back 30, almost 30, 40 years ago. Do you have any relationship to that? And right. some of them, some of them you could see like, actually they have none. And they've not been, they've not been taught that they should even know about this work. And now I'm saying, is there any relationship in your, uh, your well-trained body to what those guys were doing, gym lot gymnastics, you know, that sand lot gym, gymnastics and so on. And it's been very, it's been fascinating. Yeah, that is very important. And I was going to say that right now, the, the twin pandemic, the other one, well, as my, as my sister or someone said in another call, we're trying to pull together a family Zoom from an exploded family. I don't know about your family. Trying to, at this time, I'm saying, okay, enough with the alienated artist thing, Bill. Enough of the alienated gay artist thing, Bill. These people, many of whom you don't speak to because fundamentalist Christian or what have you, they don't know what the hell you do. They don't know what it is. Can you be around the table with them and you, can you build a new family co uh, tradition? Out of that come some very painful realities. I had little nieces tell me, voting? Well, in my church, they tell us be in the world, but not of the world. Don't vote. Okay, this is black people saying, right? Whoa. Or young black males who will not come to the meeting. First of all, because the old folks are running it. And yeah, y'all always telling us to go vote. You got celebrities, rap artists, and all these politicians telling us to go vote. You know, yeah, you did this in the 1960s. But look, they still killing us now. Why should we vote? Wow, how, how do you get your hands around that? Now that's my family, you know? So uh, it has been a learning experience uh, and I am full of it right now. I was crying before I picked up the phone for you because of related issues, right? Uh, people are angry. I am angry speaking to someone who, is, who I should be embracing, I'm cursing at. And, uh, and feeling like I've got to be the elder. I mean, you're 41. You're, you're sort of between being the hot baby and being the elder. I am elder, you know? <laughs> you know? Where are you guys at? Are you, what, I'm talking about niece, but. Yeah, well, all the, the listeners know Yeah, the listeners are. know where we are. And so actually, we're, we're more curious I have, I, I wanna break it down a little bit because I, I knew about the work that you were working on for the Armory. Mm-hmm, Deep Blue Sea. Deep Blue Sea, which yeah. was with, and it, which it was a collaboration, right? Well, it's always a collaboration. The, uh, I was working with Liz Diller, of Diller, Scafidio, and Renfro, and uh, Peter Negrini, and Nick Hallett. Nick Hallett is doing the music. Or I love Nick. Yeah. I have this known that queen for years. <laughs> I have known that queen for years. Well, because I got to see the piece that Nick did with you when I was teaching at ADF. Dora? Dora or, or Lance? Yeah. Yeah, the no. first one. Yeah, Dora, yeah. Dora. And you know, Dora, she just died. Yeah. She died uh, at the top of this uh, thing. And so it's very difficult for my husband, I'm Bjorn. I'm so sorry. Uh, well, Please send my know, condolences to Bjorn. We say that it was sad, but I don't, but I don't want to see it as tragic. For mm. him, the thing that hurt him the most was he, she's in Paris. His, his younger brother is there. They couldn't, even if he had been in Paris, they were not allowed to see her because of COVID. Right. And, and on a floor with 80 some people, I think uh. all of them, all of them died, but two or I'm maybe exaggerating. But so we don't know what her last moments were like. We 
Ronnie said that uh, she was calm and she was clean, unlike, as you know, some of the nightmares of other nursing homes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, it's and been so real. My, my extreme condolences about that. I am... Um, mm-hmm. And I loved that piece. And uh, but anyhow, so but this work. Mm-hmm. So here you are now with it being realized, <laughs> and it's at Mass Mocha, and we're tucking it at Mass Mocha, tucking it, ready to premiere it. Um, what date it was, was this? We left Mass Mocha on March twelfth, thirteenth, and uh, the oh. piece was supposed to be premiered. Am I right? In, was it late April? I believe it was supposed to have been premiered and run for ten, twelve performances. So you can imagine how those how that felt when that clock we saw, oh, today would be the day we were in, in tech. This would be the dress rehearsal. This would have been such and such. Uh, and two and two extreme years of your life. Two very extreme years. But the good news is they did decide at the armory that with some adjustments they will reprogram it for next spring. Somewhere. Now that was when I heard that news, I was weeping as well and, and uh I don't know how you feel. There's so much, Jack, you know, when I look at you, there's so much I want to talk to you about, you know, I, what is well, this and, I want, and I'm here, <laughs> and I am here to talk and I'm here to talk about all of it. And we can talk as much here and also anytime offline, because Bill, there has been a lot that I've wanted to talk with you about that. I, mm. um, I didn't feel was my place right now. So, mm-hmm. well, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit of a son of a bitch, but I'm also, available son of a bitch you are and i felt that when we got to have our sit down you are and also bill that as, was fun I'm, I'm was not, it fun wasn't it and it was so fun i'm not going to get into the specifics of this but the message that you gave me uh in 2019 mm-hmm. when i was going through something oh, um I, remember that. I cannot thank you enough for showing up to me and giving me that message and you helped me a lot and why i wanted us to talk today is because i I I wanted to hear where you are, what's going on. I'm really sorry to hear about that with the project. Did Mass Mocha say they're going to do reprogramming? Well, they were just for the site of the tech because you know the, the armory armory is a son of a bitch. It's a huge space. Huge. Where do you so he, where do you find another place field. on the planet? Yeah, yeah, yeah on the yeah, whole yeah, planet. Yeah, where do yeah. you find a place? So we were re- rehearsing out at uh, Mana, you know, out in uh, Jersey City. We did a lot of rehearsals yes. there, and the only other place that we could find a technical. Uh, facilities would have been at Mass Mocha. They were really sweet and they hated it. You know, they, when, they, when we left, they were closing the museum down. But all is not lost because they are re- reprogramming it. Okay, yeah. they're gonna reprogram it at the, at the armory and then is there, and then, well, Kyle will figure it out. Kyle and Veronica will figure out where you're gonna do this tech before it goes in there. Well, that's a or very did you good feel question. you got enough, did you feel you got enough done when you were at Mass Mocha to? Well, <laughs> <laughs> budget, budget, budget. Right. Now, if you understand that a piece is coming back, but you have to shave off yet again a considerable yeah. amount, all those groovy yeah. ideas you found that last day. Oh, my God, this is great. We should have a pink light here and we should have those words. And, and then and then oh, project over. And we got to go back. How much is the pink light going to cost considering we've had to lose this much money? How about this? So on and so forth. All of that is up in the air. But, you know, now we're supposed to say something about being artists and we're resilient and we know how to work around obstacles. Right, Jack? Absolutely. And at the same point, you know, I, I was on a friend, I was on a phone call with a friend and we, we uh, 
there's also something that I, I think is important to, uh, that grief is real and getting to have, mm. you know, this thing of just power through when you're going to muscle through. I think that can really create a lot of, um, at least for me, create a lot of burnout mm. instead of, instead of being, instead of having some, allowing myself to have some time to grieve, to have feelings, to be hurt by things that have happened mm. um, artistically, whether that's critically, fiscally, etc. May, may I ask then, you a question about that, Jack? As you, you know right now, as you right, know right now, one of the things that the people younger than you are saying is mental health is just as important as your ton dues. Right. You know, and I never, I'm thinking, tell Miss Graham that. Tell Mr. Balanchine that, you know, I don't feel it today. I'm, and the world is too heavy. I can't make rehearsal today. I mean, imagine, can you imagine, you know, but um, now the young, young folks are telling us, oh, no, 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 it is just as important. So how may I ask you, uh, you're, you're a veteran in these wars. How are you dealing with the emotional and the, the vicissitudes of this profession? Do you have words of wisdom for choreographers coming behind you? How have you done it? Uh, well, and I, I, and then I'm gonna, I am gonna steer it back to you. But I do appreciate that question. And I, I, the first piece I made, I made when I was 21, and the emotional blowback of showing material that I was uh, psychologically unprepared for, which was mm. about um, trauma. Mm. Uh, uh, I was not prepared, and so I took a big long break away from making work, and got myself a therapist. And when I teach and when I work with my students, I suggest to them that they don't put things up in front of the audience that they have not worked through. Mm. Because if you get, uh, if someone, if you get bullied about that, mm-hmm. it, it'll hit you in a way. So I've, I mean, I've been in a, I've been, I'm coming up on 18 years with my therapist. It's the longest relationship oh, of my life. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and who is, who deals specifically with, trauma and um as also can relate to politics because his he is a cuban refugee they come together so, don't they i yeah. have a i have a question that with for both of you actually jack is an educator and bill t is both an educator and a leader in an arts organization but it is going back to this question of of young people demanding more more thought be put into their emotional health their mental well-being and I I think I'm like Jack and I I lie in this point where I understand both but mm-hmm. I probably relate more to to a kind of value in routine and value in commitment to a thing that you place yourself in so sometimes I don't have a lot of compassion for people who are like you know I find this triggering my mental health takes precedent I need to not mm-hmm. be here mm-hmm. Because I still feel like if I commit to something, if I commit to a routine, it's not really my place to then make a choice about how I need it to be structured for me. Mm. I need to then commit to it and experience it as it's being presented to me. And so I'm curious about your thoughts and that's on a, that. And that is a question that could, you know, you put your pinky in the hole and suddenly your whole arm goes in. But, but I'll take a chance cause, and I don't want to say anything that has uh, angry letters coming in, but... I come from uh, a kind of school of hard knocks. I was taught that on every level, you know, uh, that you have got, uh, uh, art making is a privilege, not a right. Mm. 
Now that's a big one. I haven't had a public discussion about that. It's a privilege and not a right. Therefore, if you are in this class of people defined as artists, you're already defining yourself some way, in some ways outside the rules. Now for that kind of freedom, what are you willing to give up? And now you might say, why should I have to give up anything? Why doesn't the world come out and take care of me? Because I'm, what I do is so valuable. And I feel like, how do you say that? Listen, dear. <laughs> how did Susan, uh, Susan Sontag, and I hope I don't misquote the goddess. She said something to the effect of, of a, in a um, commencement address. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to say 20 years ago. She said, a word of, of uh, a thing I've known, I have un understood, and I, the, the Sontag scholars will correct me here. The purpose of it is not to be happy. Now, she was talking about the whole shebang, life. The purpose of life is not right. to be happy. Right. And now you think, okay, well, if that's not to be happy, then what is it? Now, that makes for a lot of, you could go wrong with that, right? I do want happiness. That's why I married this man I'm living with. That's why I married him. That's why I want to not be ashamed of being a middle class, middle age. Well, I'm an old homosexual living, looking out of a beautiful garden right now. No, I, I, I feel my parents were potato pickers. My parents, when I went off to college, they had nothing to give me. We were on welfare. I was able to get grants. I went to the university, behaved like the white kids did, smoked pot, dropped acid, did all that stuff. But there was a sense, unfortunately, thank God for Arnie Zane, this very talented, angry Jewish man who wanted what was owed to him in this world, including this African-American who he loved dearly. And he, would, he was fierce, right? And he was going to, and we had to have plans and we had to shoot for this and that. And quite frankly, we didn't expect the world to give us anything. Now, mm. funny, funny, because I'm a black person of a certain generation. The only reason I was able to go to the university was because of a liberal Congress at that time that there was discretionary cash for people like me, the underclasses to go to the university. But you know, underneath it, we felt, you know what? You turn your back and those motherfuckers are gonna lynch you. They're right. gonna rape you. They're gonna bully you, bully you. Hell, man, they're gonna like run their cars over you. So if you got in there, you do whatever you have to do. You take that shirt off, Bill T. Jones, when you have to. You smile and bat, bat your eyes and wag your ass when you need to. You are one of them that they allowed in. Here was that they. Who is this they we're talking about, right? At that time, we didn't have the words for they. If they allow you to have your mug on the front of what used to be DTW, and now it is a place that you have come in with your organization, and now it's called New York Live Arts, wear that with responsibility and pride and work for it. And are you willing to even die for it? That used to be what I said. When I came into 80, in the, in, when we moved down here from Binghamton in the early 80s, and we went to see, I think it was Linda Nylon some cool downtown place and everybody was in black and everybody, and I was being on my high horse and I said to my friend, Joe Hannon, who used to work at the kitchen, composer, I said, yeah, I see what they're doing, but what would they die for? Right. And somebody said, hey, hold up, what do you mean what they die for? Why aren't you, why aren't you asking what would they live for? Mm. So I don't know if I'm answering your question about that. I cannot say that in good conscience to young people right now without sounding like an asshole, an old curmudgeon. But you know what? It's my company. Not at all. 
Well, I also, Bill, I think there's something in that that I think, Reed, to quickly answer your question, it's very different how I speak to my students than what I'm going to require from people who I'm working with. I, those are in totally different paradigms. And with my students, it's about, it is about psychological preparation for what my experience has been as a working professional, where mm. uh, I have had to, so what I ask for my students is to come up with one sentence, one sentence they can remember quickly for why they do what they do. Mine mm. is so that people don't feel so alone. And I've needed that sentence because I knew I was going to get slammed, both critically, financially, all sorts of things. And it would end that if those things got got in my way, it would just it would deter me from my primary purpose, which is to be of service. Mm. So the thing, though, that I love in hearing from you, Bill, because something that I, as a Scorpio rising, really have is I can be very chained to my grief and very mm. chained to what would I die for? And it mm -hmm. is, it is, it's meant so much to, to ever hear someone say, but what would I live for? Mm -hmm. And, um, and where is the joy? I, like you, uh, I, I grew up in a way that if I was going to get out, it was going to have to happen surely by scholarship. Mm. And it meant that I had to be the best and that I had to continue to lily pad my way forward. And it always felt like I was jumping in midair to another place in midair. Did you feel, and, Jack, that they, that they would, they, there is the they, they um, will mm -hmm. uh, tie your hands and feet and lynch you if you give them the, the means to do so. They hate what you are. Now, uh, well, how, where I, how and where I grew up, I was intensely, uh, I was bullied and there was a lot of violence and I was very yeah. targeted. And so unfortunately for me, what it meant is that I had to, and this is before I left rural Wisconsin, I had to become really mean mm. and I had to know how to fight back. And, mm. um, you know, I, I recently, I've been, I was thinking about Stokely Carmichael and when, cause when I was first reading about Martin Luther King and I felt very confused by this idea of nonviolence and that's what then took me to Stokely Carmichael. And then, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, anyway, with my students, it's about teaching them that. And then with the people that I work with, Reed, because, and Reed, who knows this, because we've worked together so much, since my work is coming out of trauma research, and um, especially as it relates specifically for me with uh, sexuality, gender, and class disparity, it, I don't want it to re-traumatize my performers. So I, uh, I, see. I try to create a container and a space that will allow for them to be as vulnerable and to feel a sense of some kind of egalitarian process. Mm -hmm. Even though I am making the moves, I'm like, these are the moves and I'm writing the script. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I frequently, because of funding, I'm also lighting the lights. And also, <laughs> you know, the main collaboration is Reed who does the costumes, or if I'm working with a visual artist for the set. And I really enjoyed uh, reading more about your, your path, uh, Reed. But you know, this question of one of the challenges that we did, did someone mention the other night um, the, at this town hall meeting, the myth of the genius choreographer, the myth yes. of the genius, and that we must dismantle it? And of the individual, I mean, what I took from that was of the individual artist of of this idea that of kind of only of ushering and and supporting solely behind uh, certain selects, and that how can we 
uh, in terms of, and I really, and it, I felt shocked by this statement of that the, there's enough in the nonprofit. I'm not, I'm, I don't function in administration. I only know what it's like to apply for grants and to be rejected mm-hmm. from them, except for I've had, I did receive one for a dance in process. And then organizations have applied for grants for me. Like that's something that Abrams did that, you know, because I thought I was writing good grants, but clearly not. So um, this was the, what they were bringing up was how can this, how can we become more of a community by having um, there not just be certain selects that all, that a majority of capital traffics to. Yes. But does this beg the question, you know, should all resources allocated to art making be dispersed equally? Or do we do we choose those people who are making things that are maybe more provocative, more needed, etc.? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. And I would also push back on that read and say that I frequently have seen capital, and Bill, you I'm sure can agree with this, I have seen capital go actually to things that are not provocative, that are incredibly safe, and that uh, give a, a kind of entertainment more to the status quo. I, I, first of all, I don't know if we want to go into something is the edgier things have more value and what right. have you. How, how does Jenny Holzer, there's one of her truisms from the 80s, all that is new is interesting. And, right. And, and, sh- and I think she said that with a wink, right? Right. These yeah, she, that was, I believe yeah. that was ironic. Yes. <laughs> it yes. also presupposes that there's new. And yes. I, and see, what I, think, what, I think, what I think is important right now, and this is a conversation I have with my dancers, with this statement, art making is a privilege, not a right, came right. the question of, value right. and expertise who and merit uh, who decides what gives the value this and, and Jack here we go with this question about criticism and all right who decides and every artist who has ever felt that he didn't get a grant or felt cheated in some way a, a poor review or what have you an unfair review can say that the system is rigged and that they're only is rigged to get me right and you know uh, look, I'm a black uh, gay man, right? So I know something about this, but I don't dare at this point allow myself to go there. I have to believe because I know that I am a judgmental person. I know right. that I have taste. I know that I have a, va- a, a set of values. And if I am in a position at a foundation or what have you to give money, am I going to give to money blindly, I don't know if anyone's saying that, we're, we're speaking in very general terms, or am I going to have criteria? Right. And I think that the, the question on the table right now is get rid of you, the funder. Why do we have to have you people lording over us? Why do we have to have presenters? Let artists run the whole thing. Now, that sounds like uh, pie in the sky, but then again, oftentimes visionary language is pie in the sky when it starts. So I have enough humility to know that maybe I'm living in a time when people are really going to, we don't need to fight the Russian Revolution again, right? Right. We don't need to the end of history and all of that. Do we need to take apart all of the system and build new ones up that are egalitarian, without judgment, without, I mean, I don't believe it's going to happen. But then again, I'm the old guy. I didn't think it would happen, you know that I would live to be at a time where I have to say, you know, Bill, maybe you have to just sit down 
You sit down and let those young people work it out. I'm still unpacking the the election in mm. 2016 shook me mm. so much about the very question of meritocracy. Mm-hmm. And I don't I do not feel I can speak about the arts without looking at the larger social picture and bill that is clearly through your all of your work mm-hmm. that your work is very and it's why I've loved it is be, because what I've wanted is work that mirrors what is. Mm. But very personal, right? Did you trust this narrator? This narrator has a specific experience, social location. Can he be trusted to be a policymaker? Or is he just one other hungry artist out there trying to promote an idea? There's a, there's a whole class of policy, isn't there? There's a whole class of people that we want to um, mandate they, they be that. Uh, that's the idea. But you, you think otherwise, that we don't, we don't need that class of, of, of guardians and Oh, for, for that, and, I think, um, I mean, I'm still, the election brought, in terms of meritocracy, that's a question that I'm, I mean, I feel it, it demolished a sense of, for me, mm-hmm. it demolished meritocracy. And um, I, I am mm. here, and, I, and then it brought up a question of, okay, well, what happens where... You know Maria Goyanis, who is at the public? Uh, yes, she and I, I've met her, but I don't know her, no. She's at Woolly Mammoth now, but she came and spoke at Bard, and I remember her talking about working on Hamilton, and I had known uh, producers in Hamilton, and she was talking about the making mm-hmm. of it and this idea of when you make something considering that you need to consider how many people it's for. And that shook me as an artist because I mm-hmm. realized that mm-hmm. I wasn't asking that question and that my work was based on who needs it and that therefore my like when I was like why am I not touring and blah 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 it was like well that's on me actually and because I whoa, think whoa whoa how is that that's a bit self-flagellating isn't it Jack well I feel I've made work that is very that has a lot to do around uh, trauma. I mean, it's about it's trauma as it deals with gender, sexual orientation, and class. And so, I also think it's a big ask to ask people to leave their homes and come and uh, either reflect, be instigated. I mean, I try to use, as you've seen, humor. I try mm-hmm. to use, uh, which you do very well. Uh, lots of, I'm like the opposite of Yvonne Rayner's No Manifesto. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) I try to use all of that to lure people into it. And, um, but it did bring up uh, this, I thought, oh, well, I I haven't, I haven't been thinking about everyone. I've been thinking Mm. about this. And, and maybe that's why my work is where it's at. In terms of its, in terms of its touring and its viewership, are we having a discussion now about the populism question? Yes. I mean, the, yes. And is, I and would be up same, for that. Well, I don't know. I think we're so. You just like stepped stepped into it. I feel that I, as I say sometimes about my work, I and my mother. My mother is a hero in a way, but my mother was a deeply convinced Christian and Baptist. Baptist, Southern Baptist. I say that I have the infrastructure of a Southern Baptist without the faith. Mm. So I believe that if I can get the spirit going in the room, 
I can lift the room up and be lifted with it. Now, what yeah. gets the spirit moving in the room? Those are, can they could be tricks of showmanship? They could right. be just the most, like you got this stuff. You know about the costumes, you get the most beautiful performers. You, uh, all of those things are designed, I think it's because you love them, but you're also designed to win, to seduce. Mm -hmm. yes. Is there anything wrong with that? If at the Not end of the day, me. that piece, mm -hmm. well, and I don't think anything's wrong with it. Right. Now, is the, I think one of the things that in our field, now we're in a different world than when Yvonne was developing that, and she's even moved past it, but um, is, are we really making, who are, this is what I'm hearing about how many people, the question is, who are you making the work for? Right. And is that fair to ask any artist? Because um, artists say, you know, I'm, I'm making the work for people who are maybe not even born yet. Right, right. I'm making the work for people who uh, are coming from such an outside perspective. In other words, the artist cannot know their audience. Do you think that's true? Can I, an audience, artists know their audience? I, I actually do think that's true. And it was from, uh, it was from Everything is Imaginable where I really learned that. Because you had an audience mm. member write me. And oh. uh, who had won a ticket to seeing the show through the lottery. And she began her email saying, I know you make your work for queer people, but I want you to know as a straight woman uh, who's been a doctor for the last 30 years. She uh, got it, right? She, well, she said, you know, my husband died two years ago and I haven't been able to grieve. And this show helped me do that. Mm, I remember that. Yes. And that was a very, that really opened it up and and also yes why well, i wanted to speak to you another thing that i do want to get to and i i want to that i want to speak to <laughs> bill is you have lived through major crises before uh mm -hmm. you have lived through a pandemic that uh was also uh charged politically and i wanted to and you've made work on it you've spoken on it so much and I was wondering where, as we're looking at the landscape today, what things you are remembering from it and that you feel inspired and could tell us and our mm -hmm. listeners from that. Well, it's a big sprawling question and we need several conversations. But the one thing I ask, and I ask it with a, with, with a barely concealed edge, AIDS, HIV AIDS was a guilty disease. It was guilty. COVID, mm. is COVID a guilty plague? And uh, now that's a good place I like to start, right. you know? Because uh, some people say uh, COVID was just telling us that we've got to consume less. We've got to slow down. We have to respect the planet more. So yeah, we deserved it, right? Remember? Uh, if you've been in, 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 in bathhouses, you know, right. sucking dicks and being fucked and all that, and exchanging fluids and so on and so forth, yeah. Well, you had it coming. Right. You're living outside the natural law. Right. Guilty disease. Is COVID a, a disease that's not guilty? That I, and I cannot answer that. I think everybody would now, I want them to look back at AIDS. And the question is, we were told we should not have unprotected sex. No way. I don't think I knew one heterosexual person who was really paying attention to that. Mm -hmm. They didn't, because they know they were, even though we're saying we all are connected through our body fluids and blood, uh, that was very clear that, you know, as long as I don't fuck with a guy, I can continue. I don't have to change my behavior. We now see the COVID is, the, it's, the curve is 
leveling out in New York, I think, before this latest uh, violence and the, the social justice protests when people are, as my brother who is a cop who lives in Las Vegas, he sent out a very laconic text message. He said, uh, those, those kids who are breaking those windows, are they social distancing? You know, <laughs> I mean, it was like two different languages. So what did, what is there to learn? Uh, life hurts like hell. You are not special. Life can be beautiful. I've seen deathbeds that are like, you cannot believe what happened in a deathbed. And people can rise to any situation. Are you a person that can do that? What do you really love? What do you really love? What do you love? I love the truth. All right, all right, well, get out there then and make truth like Jack. He says, I believe that people can be comforted and be together. Get out there and make the fucking work that does that. I believe that I have the right to be an elder in somebody's life. I think I have the right to actually help and communicate information. If that's the case, then, Bill T, this is what AIDS has taught me. You're still around. Do you know how to articulate what it means, that, uh, what it really means to help someone? We're born, we grow. If we're lucky, we meet another human being, we meet them, we create new life, we go into a decline, and just like the leaves that fall from the trees, we will die. Nobody gets out of here alive. Now that became, you gotta realize when people your age are 41, Arnie Zane died, I believe he was just barely 40. And there were people, I don't need to tell you, we, we, we've been through it, right? I've I met kids, 16, 17, 18, right? Already with Carposi sarcoma, right? Oh, I know, I know, I know. So this fucking world is crazy. How could there be a God that could let this happen? Hey, maybe you gotta rethink of what you think God's here for. And maybe you gotta rethink of what we're here for. Now, if you want joy, make joy. Make goddamn joy. As my angel used to say, if you want hope, you already have it. Is that glib? No, I don't think it's glib. Those of us who struggle with depression know what I'm talking about. Yeah. What keeps me alive this night so I don't open the vein? Yeah. Well, that's there's a lot. There's a lot. And I, but is this a guilty disease? Is this a guilty plague? And what do we do with that? This idea that we're culpable, or is that a useless question? It wasn't. Certainly, wasn't useful when they were beating gay men over the head with it back in the day or that other underclass drug users. Right. I mean, I think it is a, it's a useful question in recontextualizing what AIDS means to the people who lived through it and maybe don't have an understanding about it. I think that this mm. COVID is a disease now that can help people to shift their narrative around what AIDS was about as they now see people who they know and love affected by something as arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And I... Do, do you ever deal with the, do you ever deal with the schadenfreude? You know, that, that uh, 
when I see sometimes the young folks stripped and ready on the beaches in Miami and they're going out to COVID parties and so on, you know, and I'm thinking, God damn it, you know, in a year's time when this thing comes back around and you're in the hospital or someone you love in the hospital, uh, I, I, I wait to see that. That's an evil thought, right? That, I think Schadenfreude is always evil. I think, but <laughs> so, but it, but it's something that it, it's it's something I feel. You think that you're that free? You're that fierce? I don't. I and what and that thought I don't think is necessarily evil. I think there's a, a lot about what revenge and and an ask for people to see things that they have no that their life's been so privileged they were to the manner born. Mm. You literally mean economically? Um, and it, it can be. It can begin there, sure. Mm-hmm. But then there can be a lot mm-hmm. of other mm-hmm. things around it, like oh yes, uh, right. which uh, really obviously go into race, and then also zones of, of as you already said, class. And... Who used the condom and who didn't use the condom? Right. 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 Who wears a mask and who doesn't wear a mask? Okay, I know it's complicated, but they're related in my mind. Completely. Yeah, And then also this, and, and I'm also curious in terms of looking back of, I mean, because also when that was happening and the, and what resources were going to uh, white people with HIV mm. AIDS and how were mm. uh, black people, uh, people of color, especially if we, then we mm-hmm. think of our trans brothers and sisters, how were they being treated through this? Mm-hmm. And... You know, Jackie, you're, you're pointing to something which is very important. Coming to this talk today, um, I said, I'm going to go sit and talk to my gay brothers today, right? I have tried, um, not even consciously, but I noticed that I am not looking at you as white men. I'm trying to, and I'm thinking, oh, well, hey, this is the time when I should be coming in here and preaching the gospel about what white men should know. This, I, I don't know what I'm even saying here other than it's really hard, the racial uh, lesson that's being taught right now. Because, you know, for me to accept that there is this kind of lesson, oh my God, Bill, you have been living in a fool's paradise. You believe Martin Luther King when he said, free at last, free at last, that we will all take hands and like little children sing. You believe that. My nephews, I told you in the South, they say, yeah, we don't, we're not going to vote. We don't believe it. They're still killing us. I said, you've lost the faith. Do I believe that there's something intrinsically different in your experience and in my experience that is rooted in our skin? I couldn't say no. Do you? I mean, you're supposed to say, yes, I see, Bill. I feel your pain. You know, that's the new, as, as John McWhorter says, that's the new religion now. White people who saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I see my privilege. Mm. This is a black intellectual, you know, John McWhorter? Yeah, yeah. You, you might be interested, yeah. But he says that I get calls from people crying that they've just come to this realization. And he says, you know, I don't, you know don't take it wrong way, but I'm not concerned about white people feeling bad. Right. I want to know what the results here for black people. I completely. I think I, I, I do believe I, I, I think that that sentiment is absolutely I think for white people to be su- that have all of a sudden been surprised that there that racism exists. That's a big shock. 
and and I think mm-hmm. and how shocking, right? And especially in some neo lib context, and then also, oh, but yes. then you go ahead and you know and you read Angela Davis and you think, uh, uh, okay, but this was, or or actually, I really think of. Um, you know, Butler and gender trouble when it's, when we start talking about like mm. who's getting marked. But how is the gay community doing now? It used to be, when you said gay community, you of course meant the buff uh, vanilla that was on the cover of The Advocate. Mm-hmm. That's when it was back in the mm-hmm. day. And uh, and all the, the black, because uh, I'm just now able to say queer. Mm. I'm just now, you know? Now do not call me fucking right. queer. I will fucking punch your fucking my eyes out. No, it's an empowerment, Bill. We've accepted this language. It meant very, something very different for you and me. That word was oh, yes. a very well, different word. Gay, how do you think the gay culture is doing around race now? How is the Not gay as good doing? as I would like it to be. But you know, with me, with class, though, Jack, I'm just we don't leave the, lose the class thing, is I thought that, once again, it is something Darwinian about it. The reason that we were, when I was a child, I could still hear my grandmother through my mother, don't burn books. You never burn a book. And I didn't understand what that was until I realized it was a time when we weren't allowed to be educated, allowed to read. Right. So, I, right. yes, yeah, so I, I'm going to assimilate into the middle class. I'm the one who said, uh, particularly my angry moments about uh, the downtown, I said, I feel like I am in some outpost uh, uh, full of refugees from the middle classes. And that was at refugees, mm. poor, because I went to school with them. They're so disillusioned with the, uh, the, the rules of the middle class. They're so disillusioned. They want to they wanna go to some outpost where they can be truly authentic and so on. And here I am, you know, on welfare, and everyone's talking about dropping out and, and going off to Woodstock and all. Uh, what the hell? Who are, are you dropping out? You can't even get in, man. You know that? So once right. you do get in there, you better like you better be middle class. You better. You right. better get in there. Now, can you stay middle class and not lose? And now this is a question for you. Do you think that with your class, your underclass, there's some essential, important aspect of yourself that is at the risk of being erased if you accept middle class? Is that what's behind this question of class? Is that you believe to accept the privileges, if you will, the potentials, if you will, that there you're gonna to have to pay on the other side and you feel guilty about that. Like some deal with the devil. It's uh it's it's a Yeah. Well, you know, I look at my heroes, when I look at heroes, like I hear John Coltrane blow, I hear Billy Holiday sing, I hear Louis Armstrong, those people were geniuses, boom. And they were also gig artists. They wanted to be paid. They wanted to be paid. They wanted that house in Scarsdale or wherever. They wanted all of that, right? And Maya Angelou used to talk about, well, Maya's come up a lot, when uh, people from PETA, and I believe I don't mean to criticize PETA, would be coming up to she or Gladys Knight all wearing their furs, those ladies in their furs, and they say, you know, you, you shouldn't be wearing that. And, and Maya would say, well, I told them, I said, look, when you all had, it was all right when you wore furs, but now that I'm able to wear them, you're going to tell me I shouldn't? Now, those are conversations that are missing. Are they two different conversations? What, what is that? Those of us who are uh, refugees from the lower classes, who have been allowed into the middle class and upper class, and you got the talent, you can go anywhere you want to in this business. 
you, you know, and uh, those of us, how do we feel about our narrative? And how are we uh, able to, without guilt, punish ourselves, but also build right. and keep that ladder so people can climb up? This has been very difficult right. for me as a self-involved artist. I am getting a message that I have to stop soon because I think I have another call. Um, how, how, okay. Is there anything else we want to wrap up? Let me see what... Well, but what, I, what I'm curious about that, what I, I mean, the main thing that I wanted to be, just be able to hear from you today was in looking back on, on your life and considering where we are now and just to take in any message mm. that you might have to give us and to give... Uh, our listeners. Well, let me, let me, well, let me, I think these are, these and are, I feel you have given some, I know I, I talk a lot ones. and I hope that you edit this out. So I don't, you do not. <laughs> I want, I, as I said, Bill, I only want more okay. and I'm going to, well, going from, going from the era of still here, when I was out speaking to people who had, or had been dealing with life-threatening illness and I asked them, how did you do it? And they would say, um, live in the moment, cherish small things, you must have a higher sense of purpose in your life. Does that mean God? I don't know what. And then, what is your community? Now, they would always say that. That's how they were able to make it. Some of them are not allowed now, but that's how they were able to get there. And I stand behind those four things. I think that's, yeah. and particularly that, live in this moment, cherish small things, reach out. And this is hard for a self-involved and wounded artist. Uh, can you be a part of a community? Bill, thank you. I want to briefly just say to you, Bill, and I've said this to you before, when I was an early art maker, I was on that panel and we were all complaining, why can't, don't we have enough? Why don't we have enough? And this man stood up and said, everyone who helped you died of AIDS and stormed out, <laughs> didn't talk to us. Mm. And I want to thank you for being a survivor who helps, yes. for being someone who shows up. Um, I spent this past year listening to interviews to the AIDS World History Project. I spent a lot of time with Arnie's archive. I spent a lot of time getting to know you vis-a-vis -vis that, and I want to thank I you. I wish he knew deeply. you. I wish he knew you. Oh, I, my God. Now, that's Bill, what it is. I cried so hard when I listened to his. I, Linda Murray was holding me. I, he said so many things that I felt. When he said, I wish I made dances like Lucinda Childs, I cried because I wish I was that queen, too. <laughs> And I'm just not. I just am not. And I, I love him. I miss him. Oh, I wish man. I could have met I him. Do. And I am I honored to know you and to get to know him through you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye, gentlemen. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you again. Bill is gone now. We're doing an unusual thing where we're going to talk a little bit beyond the interview because there is just too much to say. And we didn't get a chance to really wrap everything up with with Bill as he had to leave. Um, but it was an exceptional interview. And and and, you know, just to be clear, you know, Jack and, and Bill, and you can speak to this, you guys have like a very interesting relationship because you've worked yeah. with Nyla and which requires you to have some kind of dialogue with Bill. Well, Bill and I had, had done an interview um, uh, when I was there and I got to talk with him some then and then... Um, and then we also had a couple phone calls 
that where he's just uh, was very supportive around something that I was going through and um, actually that you and I were going through. And uh, so, yes. And then I spent, as I already said to him, all, all of this time uh, this past year, I mean, not all of this time, but uh, a fair amount of time with Arnie's archive. Right. Right. And I, I just want to say, I think at some point in the conversation, I, I do call into question or raise the question about um, the sensitivity of younger people and in the arts and what, what, what level of sensitivity should we be taking towards, towards young people entering into this field as, as educators, et cetera. And I want to say that I, I do have an amount of compassion and sensitivity towards those people, particularly people who come from marginalized communities. I think my issue in, in these situation comes up a lot from stories that you tell me about how students in this day and age um, have various sensitivities to things. And it's hard for me to hear that, particularly when they're, when they're students who come from so much privilege that they enter into academic environments with expectations about how they should be taught. Mm. Um, but that's, you know, my own issue, especially coming from, you know, very, very specified and regimented kinds of academic arts environments. Mm -hmm. But it is like, obviously, a different decade. It's a different century, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, so I just want to say, like, I, I do have compassion around these topics. It's just, I, I, you know, in the way that Bill was able to speak on being an elder and being somebody who is now having to relearn and listen to people of a different generation. I, I, I similarly have, um, I have some of those feelings, but I do find you read to be very, I, I feel you sell yourself short on that because I've also heard you talk about things that you found really, um, unjust you're, you're very just at things that you found very unjust in your experience as a dancer that not only helped shape you in terms of not wanting to ever be that yourself, but I think stewarded you into wanting to actually have some agency over your life. Yeah. And, and to be, and, and, and to be a costume designer and now you're going to grad school, which to me means that you then can go and teach and what a gift you know, and in talking with Bill, when we got off of the call, I really lost it because I am always struck by that. I feel I'm reaching into nothing while reaching to the kids I'm teaching mm-hmm. because of AIDS. The amount of people that AIDS took from us in terms of elders to look for and to and to be guided by, there is, there is no way that we will ever recover from that. And our generation is beset with trying to be something for a younger generation that we didn't have. Mm-hmm. And that is um, a huge task. And, uh, but I believe we can do it. Mm-hmm. I believe it. And I, and I see it like my students are, oh my God, they're so amazing. And the way they handled this past semester, and I just, uh, and you and I have talked about this before on this podcast, when you looked at what it looked like in terms of the votes by age, 
I mean, come through. Yeah. <laughs> like the the children are the future and they are um showing up and and it is our responsibility. Yeah. To assist them as best we can. But yeah. I do not think it is a conversation that can happen without the discussion of AIDS. Right. I think another another interesting thing that we talked about that I wanted to touch on is, you know, from the the dance union's town hall, mm-hmm. there was this discussion around like there being enough resources, but it was just how they were being used that needed to be looked at and needed to yeah. be there needed to be some kind of adjustment in that. And I think that that is probably true. And I think that our own perception to numbers and money can also shift because I, you know, I didn't grow up with money, but my relationship to money is not tied up in feeling like I don't have any. I was always made to feel as if I was living a sort of worthwhile and interesting life. Mm-hmm. I at, at no point felt destabilized by a number amount. And right. I mean, I can, you know, I can owe that to my, to my mother, I guess, for, for, for creating an environment in which I felt safe. And obviously like to look at the life that I lived as a child and now as an art maker, you know, I, I, I've lived a very privileged existence, but it is a privilege that comes without money. And so there are obviously, there are many ways of looking at what to do with our resources. And I, I, I strongly believe that there should be more equal distribution of resources. But I do also believe, do you feel that there's a situation in which the money should be divided evenly amongst everybody and then we see what happens? I definitely do fall more into the, uh, you know, if there was a way for, you know, I was talking about this recently with someone about what if everyone just had the same income? I mean, that then we're talking about communism. And, but how could that happen without a Castro situation? You know, how do you, how do you do that without the, whoever the person in charge is still not making sure that they take care of the 1%, which is what happens in in communist culture. So we ended up finding out was that, you know, the people in power are hoarding the money and making sure that them and their friends are all still getting like private hospitals. So I do believe that if people's, fundamental needs were met that if if every if we were if everyone had a more equal income um that actually we would enter into and this is so you know perhaps me as too much of an aquarius of but this idea that we would enter into a new phase of living that would alter all forms of culture yeah but first our lives because our lives would be taken care of people wouldn't be afraid of hospital bills and of their, yeah, their very agree. livelihood. And, and and there are examples out there that really point to it being possible that artists be supported in a, in a more even way and that there not be this kind of fear around not being able to pay bills or your mm-hmm. healthcare, et cetera. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's something interesting to aspire to. And I, I also see in looking at art that comes from those places, the downsides to that. Like when you look at a place like Sweden, when you look at a place where <laughs> artists are really supported, right. you're like, well, I mean, there is of course some art coming out of these places that is worthwhile, that is interesting, but it does lack 
this kind of discussion that happens inside of a more um, tense environment. Well, I think, but that's what's interesting, right, is this uh, is also the notion of, and I mean, this is when it starts to really, this is when I feel like I switch gears from theoretical or political into spiritual, and then we get into Buddhism. And the first noble truth of that is that to be alive is to have suffering. And I, I think that then we get into more of this question of what's art for. And there's some people who want to feel vent. I'm one of those people who wants to feel ventilated by and moved by work that has that edginess in it. But there's other people who really don't want that. And I think the thing that is curious inside of it is, so then how could those both exist? But how could there be capital behind material that is edgy and push and pushes boundaries, but also can exist outside of standardized categorical thinking. Right. That, because that's the other thing that we're going to see then, right? Is I mean, because if you're bringing up these things of works that have state funding, but then we start to see like, they all look very similar. Right. I mean, that, you know, if in fact there were a situation where suddenly everyone in the dance arts community were to start receiving, you know, national funding and everybody was put mm -hmm. on a more even playing field. It would still in America, there would still be decades of anger and tension that would be expressed through the work. We would certainly not be lifetimes. Lacking. We would not be yeah, lacking yeah, for yeah. that. And to go back to AIDS, it is during the AIDS crisis that we had our cult, that the culture wars happened. Mm -hmm. They are, they are bonded together they are hands, they're in the evil white hands of Ronald Reagan and Jesse Helms and all of the of those incredible evil sociopaths. Yeah, um, those are people who believed so strongly in the antithesis of socialism that they caused homelessness in America, that they took away right. art in America. These are actually evil people who don't have right. any understanding of themselves, really. They don't have an understanding of humanity or how we should function as a society. That was when you had artists like the NEA4 and what happened to them was that places on the left didn't want to support them anymore because they were afraid of losing their resources. It, 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 it happened on both sides. And we're back to what we talked about in the beginning, like the left and the right. I mean, of course the right, but the left also was like, Ooh, I'm, I'm worried. I don't, I guess we won't have Karen Finley come here. And I, I think that that really needs to be examined and looked at. And so, yes, when people are calling for art, artist equity, it's something I've always believed in and have, have, but have tracked back at least for me, in terms of the culture wars and AIDS, what happened inside of that. And yeah, this, uh, these different niches um, and uh, that fight for each other and become really competitive. And that is a part of the, the dance world that I'm not interested in. When I came into the dance world, it was because of how fed up I felt with the, how, how much categorical thought I was experiencing in mm -hmm. theater specifically around heterosexuality and that I experienced a lot of, at that time I deemed it as homophobia and I would deem it as femphobia. And it, I just, I felt that there was more room mm -hmm. in dance performance art. And it was, it's interesting then when you're in there to see, Oh, but there are, 
it's it's here too. There's this thing of no escape. So then the thing that I liked that the dance union brought up is, well, how do we create places for these administrators to have transparency? And what do these administrators need? I'm an artist. I'm not an administrator. <laughs> I don't, and I don't want to work in arts admin. That's why, you know, that's probably why I don't ever get a grant. I, it's because my grants are probably really bad. Right. And um, I, I mean, written, I, I, I'm not terribly <laughs> involved in this universe of grant getting and giving. And I've, I've, I've applied for a couple myself and been lucky enough to work in such a niche part of this dance world that I have been awarded most of the things I apply for because we're kind of up underrepresented um, component of this field we work in. Um, but in, 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 in seeing how these grant structures work and, and sub, I suppose what they're looking for in terms of language, I think there hopefully should be some kind of dismantling of that mm. moving forward because it's so disingenuous to have to use all of these kind of trigger words in order to receive money. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's sort of absurd, actually. And someone who I've heard speak so eloquently on that is Terry O'Connor. Also how the, 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 also the sort of fallacy of doing a pitch to an organization about a project that you're going to make in two years. Exactly. And how that also betrays what the very artistic process is, which is about finding, discovering, and research. I mean, that's live art. That's what we're involved in. And, um, right. but I'd also want films to be able to have that leeway, um, yes. to have all arts I mean, have that leeway. I was listening to an episode of the dance union, which is my new favorite podcast. Big, and, huge shout out to them. Like, and Jay Bowie was talking about how, you know, he's been learning through repeated applications to various organizations about what it is that they're looking for. Mm. And rather than like at this point, try to cater his applications to these people, which would be disingenuous. He's like, I'm not going to apply to them anymore because you know, they've made it abundantly clear to me that I'm not what they're looking for. Yep. And I was like, that is wise to like, what are you wasting? If you know that they're not looking for your product, do not then write a bunch of silly words to try to convince them otherwise. And I am not going to call out these grant, like these granting bodies, but I remember going through that in my early 30s when I, I was applied to the ones that everyone told me to apply to. And then after my third attempt on each of them, I was like, I've tried three times, I'm letting go. And I remember Miguel being like, you, you know, I mean, I remember Miguel saying like, look, if you want a Guggenheim, it like takes six times and blah, blah, blah. And I just, because I remember people saying, you have to start young. And I was like, well, I'm coming into this at, you know, in my, at 27. So, and I, I'm, I'm trying to just plan out my rehearsals on and figure out how to do this show at Dixon Place on $3,000. And while I like right. get Pilates certified and have that secondary way of just getting some food on the table when I decided to leave acting, which I agree with Bill in that. That's a privileged decision to make. I always, yes. I have never, and it's part of how I grew up. I didn't grow up with art. My experience was like through TV and film. I really should have, I should have gone that route. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing, like we, if, if you feel so powerfully that it is your calling to yeah. work in the arts, you must come to it knowing that it will be a struggle. Right. And you know, if that's not what you're looking for and you don't want to be engaged in that way and be a part of what can be and often is like 
an incredibly loving, compassionate, interesting community, then absolutely go be a ditch digger. I mean, it's honest work and it's reliable and it's steady. It's really, I I think the thing too, that's imperative always to just say to artists is for, to make sure that we are watching the news and seeing our place. I do believe in the efficacy of live art. I have felt its efficacy and at this, you know, at the same time it's, and I, and do what you love. But all this said, I believe that the speakers from the dance union town hall meeting are correct in saying that there are, there are resources out there and, 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 you know, there is enough for everybody. It's just, I was really, I was really surprised in that, in that thinking because I haven't worked in arts admin before and I've just, instead have dealt with, this is all we have, or actually we have to cut your budget. Right. It was eye-opening to hear them. And to hear that people who've worked in arts administrations can speak to that there is enough if it was distributed equally. I was, I was surprised. And I was, I did think about, um, you know, those who, and we see this, right? We see someone get a grant and then they get all the grants that year. Right. And I mean, I, I also, I, I heard Jay Bowie talking about this on, on the podcast as well. You know, there, there needs to probably be more transparency because I, as a person who comes in towards the end, who's a collaborator, sometimes my fees are greater than what the dancer would have made during the entire course of building a work. So, you know, I participate in the inequity and I, I, I know that it exists. So I I would definitely like there to be more transparency. Well, and that was, I think what was interesting for me inside of it. And it was, I was, it was amazing to see Bill's eyes open when I said that I haven't made money from my work was because I, I've always paid the dancers the same fee that I get. I always split it amongst everyone. The only time when I got to not do that was during Shamb because we had such extreme residency support that I actually got to pay myself for the time that I was alone working on the script. I mean, Bill, Bill T. Jones is an exception to the rule. Right. I mean, he, he hustled and worked very hard for many years to create a really major reputation, rep, uh, uh, reputation for himself, which then, you know, evolved into being the most decorated, celebrated black dance artist right. ever. Right. There is nobody who's ever been in a situation like that. So right. obviously it, it would, it, you know, his lived experience and dance is very different than anything we could ever imagine. Right. And, and uh, I also just want to uh, shout out the dance unions. It is Jay Bowie, but it's with Melanie green. Who's also, I've really loved hearing her, her as well and, and hearing them together. It's a good, we have to, I hope that we can find a time when they can come on. Yeah. They have really listened to their podcast. It's excellent. Yep, fully. And they have over 50 episodes, so you have a long catalog to catch up on. Yeah. Although we're coming right up on our three-year anniversary. I don't know when that is, but... Oh my God, Reed, we really are. Episode 56. Is, what episode are we? Who knows? But episode 56 will be our three years. Episode 50. What do you mean, episode 56? You mean 156? Oh, no, no. Yeah. Yes, 156. Is that how many we've done? <laughs> I think we're very, yeah, we're just about there. I can't. It's really, it is a lot. I mean, wow. What a, what an oral history catalog. We'll get it. <laughs> we'll get it all to the NYPL. 
it's kind of like saving um like 50 years of taxes and at a certain point you're like well can i throw these away and you're like probably yeah most of them. yeah 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 it's <laughs> it's like um laying you with the metal box oh my god bye um it's it's not that tragic no 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 it's not i do and i will it's like I, I, it's, I also want to say that it's been heartening to see protests over around the world. Yes. Um, and may the whole, and you know, the pandemic has affected the whole world. Racism affects the whole world. And, um, uh, I, it's, may we keep moving forward to the dismantling of, uh, the patriarchy. Yeah. Hooray! I have, here's here's hoping. Anyhow, um, uh, uh, ladies and other, we uh, thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We loves you. And our YouTube, our YouTube lives might be a little more TBD. Um, and and do continue to rate. Give us five stars. We don't like to accept anything other than five stars. Uh, we do like um your reviews even if they're funny and bad subscribe subscribe like subscribe click link donate all that um pada and authentic pada movement Bure. and <laughs> we'll be back um watch just pretty on our latest dance and stuff yes. live it'll be it's available to you on youtube she's incredible and we'll be back next week with somebody we love we you. loves you <laughs>